Rock, season four of the Telly Award-winning podcast. Coming at you like Rand Pelzer, selling our wares door to goddamn door, drumming up fantastic ideas for a fantastic world, and making the illogical logical. I am Robin Grant, screenwriter, Ringo Award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Banjax, and now Shang Origins. The other voice in the dark, the man on the box to the left is... David Avalone, uh, writer and uh, coffee achiever. Coffee achiever. If you missed any of our previous conversations, episodes featuring comic luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fraction, Stan Sakai, Kevin Eastman, Rodney Barnes, and many, many more. Also, WGA strike conversations with folks like Melody Cooper and Christopher Cantwell. Our entire catalog can be celebrated via YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and other purveyors of worthwhile ear cracks. So double on back and check it all out. Did I include Spotify? Fuck Spotify. We're off Spotify. We kicked him out the goddamn door. No we more Spotify. Uh, uh, but we, we ejected them like the human body. Yeah, ivermectin. But we remain uh, here and there a top sixty visual arts podcast on Apple Pod. So so check us out there and anywhere else you uh, you like to find things to listen to. Uh, great show today. Um, I'm very excited for this uh, uh, guest. We go way back, but um, but uh, w- w- what do you got for us this week, Avalonie? What are you up to before we, uh, uh, we get into the conversation? Let's see. This is coming out Wednesday. I have two uh, comic series currently coming out called Elvira in Monsterland. The first two issues are out. Um, good, clean, wholesome American fun. Three more of those coming. I uh, just finished writing issue five this weekend. Or last week, and uh, uh, the usual bunch of dumbass NDA nonsense I can't talk about. And I will be at San Diego Comical, Comical Con. Comical. Uh, I have five panels and two signings and 25 appearances at the Bayfront Hilton Bar, uh, all scheduled in. There you so, go. Uh, yeah. That's all. It's going to be a very complicated schedule, but I think I can manage it. Uh, as long as the cocktail waitresses keep up, uh, it should all be good. Yeah, well, they're they're pros down there. Yeah, they are um, absolutely pros. <laughs> uh, I'm in the same boat with the NDA stuff as I uh, as I wait for my my TV show to uh, pick back up. As I wait to uh, to to get the go ahead from the guild to resume writing my Hell's Angels uh, 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 screenplay, uh, I am working on a bunch of other stuff. Um, doing a lot of work for Immortal Studios uh, and their their Wuxia uh, Kung Fu comics line. Um, there will be a panel at San Diego Comic Con where we'll tell you all about it. I will finally be able to tell you about some of the stuff I'm working on that I am sworn to secrecy uh, about right now. So that will be a Saturday afternoon. Check your guidebook for that. Um, we, of course, have a writer's block panel. Uh, I don't know who we pissed off at, um, at San Diego Comic Con, but they... They 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 have for the second year in a row scheduled scheduled us against the Eisner Awards. So um, we um, we have friends who are very talented, uh, many of which end up nominated for Eisners. So when we try to populate our panel and we go to our friends and it's like, uh, hey, do you want to do a panel? And they're like, dude, I'm nominated for an Eisner. <laughs> like, no. Uh, so, um, but we 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 managed to put a good group uh, together group. Yeah. Uh, of pe- people who have been nominated for Eisners but aren't this year for whatever reason. Uh, and so check us out on Friday night if you're not going to the Eisners. Um, I'm uh, on Terry Mayo's panel also, um, which I believe is another, uh, th- that's another Saturday one, I think. Um, yeah. Let's say, yeah. Uh, yeah. You Our know, panel's you know, Friday night. The, the Terry Mayo one is Saturday night. Yeah, yeah. So up to a lot of stuff there. Um, other than that, you know, I, I started, um, 
I, I figured out the new Kickstarter book. Um, so uh, so oh, announcement okay. announcement coming on that. I'm very excited about it. Delving into a world that I've never delved into before. And so that's going to be good. But uh, but I digress. And uh, this is a show of digressions. Uh, we apologize in advance, but let's bring Josh on because I'm excited about this. So, Ladies and gentlemen in all ships at sea, Josh Miller. Hello. Howdy, howdy. Welcome, Josh. Welcome, Josh's uh, fantastic WGA t-shirt. Yeah, full of uh, fresh stink from today. <laughs> <laughs> and it's Disney stink, which is the best. Stink. Yes. It stinks for kids. Kind of stink. stink for kids. Kind of stink. Yes. Not removing any of that stink from the library today. Uh, there you go. To make a very inside baseball joke. But uh, right. Josh, tell the kids at home a little bit about yourself. Uh, my name is Josh Miller. I am a filmmaker, I guess primarily a screenwriter as far as credits people might know. And I hail from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Nice. And now I live in beautiful downtown Burbank. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. We should say, you know, so, so, uh, Josh. I mean, you had what three hit films last year? You, you, you had uh, uh, Sonic Two, uh, Violent yeah, Night, Violent and, Night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was there's a third one, wasn't there? Am I missing one? I, I wish. I, no. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so, so it was only two mega hits. It wasn't the Sorry, three mega hits that I thought you underachieved this year. Uh, I, I thought for some reason you had a a, a third monster, but um, but. Big fan of Josh's. Um, uh, my first like official movie that my writing partner and I did um, came out of a, a 20th anniversary Blu-ray last year. Oh wow! So maybe you saw yeah. me. What was that? that? It's called Hey Stop Stabbing Me. Like, <laughs> yeah. There we go. Nice little. That is a great there. title. Yeah, but 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 I mean, this was like a big cult film, and I I have to imagine that you you go in for meetings with big execs, and they're still like, dude, I'm a huge fan of Stop Stabbing Me. <laughs> it it does kind of happen. I mean, yeah. I was actually, I think that movie is entirely responsible for why you and I know each other. Yeah, I yeah. You oh, do you even know? Did you know I, that? I, well, yeah, I do know that because because Keith Calder, uh, yes. um, you know, who's a who's a big producer. He, he produced Blind Spotting, does the TV show, uh, uh, just did um, One Night in Miami, mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, he's a huge fan of that, and and basically called you in and said, "Hey, what do you want to do?" <laughs> yeah, and so then we started yeah. hanging out with uh, Keith and his then partner. Uh, uh, Colucci. Yeah, Ryan Colucci. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, who we've, uh, yeah, we had, I, I don't think we've had him on this show. I, I had him on a, a panel uh, uh, before. But um, but yeah, so so uh, long-winded way of saying we're dancing around the topic, but Josh and I have known each other for, God, probably 20 years now. Um, and, you know, we got hired by the same people. And because of that, started hanging out with the same people. And we were at, <laughs> we were at all these parties together. And, um, man, we have done some, we have done some odd things over the years. Uh the 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 biggest one that sticks into my mind was that Josh and I ended up at a Steven Seagal concert together. Yeah, I was gonna say I think I took wow. the photo you have sitting next to him. Yeah, I, yeah, still, <laughs> I, I don't know where that photo is for me. It's buried somewhere on a. Yeah, it is. It, it is. Uh, yeah, it is on my. I mean, it, you can you can now uh, uh, listeners viewers go to my uh, Instagram account, my Facebook account, and see a picture of Steven Seagal and I. That yeah, that taken Josh, by but, me. Yeah, but, was, but uh, what does at a Steven Seagal concert? I'm sure I'm going to regret asking. <laughs> what does he play the tambourine? No, no, no. no. He's actually yeah. pretty good at guitar. Yeah, the, he, 
the thing he's, 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 yeah, it's blues. Yeah, he's he's yeah, like it's a blues, oh, okay. and he so was it's a Bruce Willis the, kind of a vanity thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he's the it's, only it, white person on stage. Well, that's a good. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well, well. I mean, it was, it, it's it's actually it's a really interesting story because so so we went to this concert and this was he was promoting his second album. It was called was it was that was it Sounds from the Crystal Cave. Sounds from the Crystal Cave was the first one. He was promoting Mojo Priest, I think. When, uh, when we went, right. All I remember is that he had yeah. more than one song that had the word ass in the title like alligator ass yeah 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 well i i actually because because my 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 then girlfriend now wife climbed on stage and stole the set list and i had and oh, I, had, wow. I had i had steven it, it's around here somewhere i probably i probably should have had it in the chamber to show so, it I gotta but, say, but, but yeah all, alligator's ass is the yeah that, that's like the third track yeah oh wow i remembered yeah, it yeah, in it, the crystal cave sounds a lot more like he wanted it to be prog rock than blues. Yeah, yeah. Very... Well, it, yeah, it, it's very, it's bluesy, it's meditative. But it, so, so here's the thing: is so, so when we went to this concert, like I don't know what it would have been like to see him three years earlier or something like that. But when we went, it was right after Katrina, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so you had all of these amazing blues jazz musicians who were out of work and were 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 having trouble making ends meet. Um, and so Stephen, who who you know he. I mean, it's well documented at this point, but he, he owns a, a home in New Orleans. Uh, he is uh, technically like a, a deputy sheriff in, in in New Orleans, and and you know that that's caused all sorts of trouble. He he had a, a TV show where that were uh, yeah, yeah relocated to Arizona, and they drove a tank through somebody's house, and yeah. there were all sorts <laughs> of lawsuits. But but I digress. It's a show of digressions. Anyway, so what Stephen did was he flew to New Orleans. He said, "Hey, who's out of work?" and literally scooped up like the five, six, 10 best blues and jazz musicians he could find. And they were up on stage with him here in Los Angeles when we saw this concert. And so it was like, tell you, it was a phenomenal fucking concert. It was like, yeah. it, it, it was like 10, like not just home run musicians, but grand slam fucking musicians with Steven Seagal in the middle, <laughs> just kind of. Yeah. That's always know. the trick. That's always the tricky part though. And you see that with, uh, you see that a lot with comedy producers live show comedy producers of like yeah. never be the least funny person on your stage <laughs> yeah. never, never make it obvious like oh oh no one would give you stage time so you yeah. paid for this well, yeah, yeah. Like, that that's that's what's happening here also probably the only person in the world who owns a home in new orleans and moscow yeah there you go it, it, it yeah 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 we probably, should, we probably, probably shouldn't get into his weird politics but 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 yeah. i mean the funny steven seagal thing was you know i mean we have listened to steven seagal talk in movies for for years you know i mean i i, I don't know how far we go I, I may go back 40 years with steven seagal at this point and 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 josh probably goes you know goes back further and more intense than i do even but um <laughs> but we have listened to this guy talk and like we can close our eyes and hear his voice but when he was up on stage you know, as a musician with all these guys around him, all of these African-American <laughs> musicians, he, for some reason, was channeling the voice and, and the style of like a 70-year-old, like grizzled, black, Cajun, you know, jazz musician. I mean, he he was, you know, ah, rah, 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 rah. He's He's like, like, his voice he, changed, his mannerism changed. It was like he was possessed by someone. Like, if you remember that show in Living Color... Uh, David Allen Greer, I think, had he had like a character of an old blues man who was just like, I'm running a song about it and I'm playing for you. Here's how it goes. And that was Seagal was suddenly sounded like that. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it was, it was. And so we all show up to this thing and we're like, what is happening? 
Oh my God! And then and, and then we got to meet him afterwards, uh, as 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 Josh sort of alluded to. And uh, you know, we, we had this meet and greet thing, and he comes out wearing like a kimono, you know, and he's uh, he looked like yeah. an exhibit out of a wax museum, and oh. he was like he was like barely there. Uh, Wasn't uh, the thing for your photo ops where he doesn't smile? It's like yeah. the opposite of normal photo ops. Yeah. All I but, remember, all I know personally about Steven Seagal is there was a brief period in 1991 when he was committed to murdering a friend of mine uh, who was sleeping with his ex-wife. Ooh. Or maybe they were just separated. Oh, wow. But a very handsome young friend who yeah. had attracted the fancy of Kelly LeBrock. There you go. And therefore the murderous ire. I remember we went to lunch in Beverly Hills once, and I'll—it's it, a ridiculous name to drop. But this—if you want to imagine how handsome this kid was, this was Roger Moore's son oh, well, uh, yeah. from his nice. Italian wife. Oh, so well. imagine Roger Moore, but like twenty percent more Marcello Mastroianni, like <laughs> a little more, even more, like even more comically suave and handsome than Roger Moore. Uh, and we were like having lunch at some deli in Beverly Hills, and he was like wearing dark glasses and looking around, and I'm like. What's going on, Jeff? He's like, I think Steven Seagal comes in here sometimes. <laughs> and I'm like, and we should care because he's like, well, I've been sleeping with Kelly LeBron. <laughs> why, 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 why wasn't there an episode of Entourage where Vince like slept with Kelly LeBron? Yeah, was talking yeah, Steven Seagal for a half hour. Like, because I, I wasn't because I wasn't writing it. But, is it uh, is it too late for another movie? I mean, <laughs> hey. Yeah, never too late. Exactly. Did another so Sex in the I, City movie. I do want to ask a question about the genesis of Violent Night, which I loved. Um, Thank my you. wife and I, my wife and I went to see it at the Sunset Five and laughed our ass. It's funny. The last two movies we watched at the Sunset Five were that and Cocaine Bear. <laughs> and I'm like, this is an odd genre niche we're hitting. <laughs> at this art house cinema <laughs> like that we're going to see the gory uh gory indie comedies at uh but yeah we love loved it loved harbor in it uh what would where did that come from and how long had you had that idea that so that might even technically count as our oldest idea my writing a, partner pat casey and i had so funny for those watching video of this this is actually a picture from it we I uh, had a cable access show in <laughs> Bloomington, Minnesota, which is Incredible. The of Minneapolis. That was from our very final show right before we all moved away for college. Um, but we had a whole string of like diehard related sketches we'd done. Sure. So the weirdest thing for us thinking back is that that sketch itself was sort of a callback to earlier diehard sketches we'd done or like just let's do another diehard one but it was christmas so this will be our christmas episode we'll put santa in it and he'll kind of be john mcclain nothing about it bore any resemblance to obviously the movie we made but that was the kind of idea i'm sure you guys have the same thing where just a stupid idea you'll bring up with like a writing partner or a friend every five years and kind of like, Oh, that'd be so funny to do. Yeah. But you're always like, no one's ever going to, who's going to make that idea. It's too insane. Yeah. But then after when Sonic was coming out, we just finally started mentioning it to people. Keith Calder being uh, one of those people, I'd say he actually pay played an instrumental part in just us finally being like, Oh, Maybe we should like mention this to our agents and stuff because <laughs> we had mentioned it to him and his partner, uh, Jess. Yeah. And they're like, oh, that's so funny. I feel like someone might actually make that. And we w went with them 
to pitch it to somebody they knew at Hulu. Uh, and Keith loves to say that like a year later, that person checked in and be like, Hey, whatever happened to that, uh, Santa movie. And he's like, that universal already made it. It's coming out. <laughs> you dummies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I, it's, it's amazing. The, the ideas that won't die, you know, I mean, mm. there's a reason why they, um, a reason why they don't die. Um, and those things eventually get made. It, it's amazing too, how, uh, you know, how long it can take something to get made to come to fruition. I mean, I, I have a, I have a movie coming out, um, this year, uh, later this year, um, it's going to depend on kind of festival releases and stuff like that. But um, it was the first thing I ever got paid to write in Hollywood. So it's, um, yeah, that oh, was, wow. that was, <laughs> it was 2005 or something like that. Yeah. And it almost, it, it almost got made before the last strike, um, mm -hmm. you know, but then obviously that strike happened and, and it was kind of a wrecking ball and things got categorized as pre-strike movies, post-strike movies. And most of the post-strike movies never got picked back up. But yeah, like the, you know, director called me uh, two years ago and said, you know, hey, I, I, I've been thinking about that. I haven't been able to get that script out of my mind. I, I think I'm going to make it. And and I'm like, you know, OK, yeah, I, 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 not the first time I've heard it, but that was an idea that just kept coming up. It kept coming up. It wouldn't die. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so it got made. They they shot That's it amazing. last year. <laughs> and so <laughs> and so it, it, it's just so weird. Right. Because it's like, I mean, the, the number of ideas that the number of balls that we have to keep in the air constantly to yep. like to 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 stay alive in this, you know, uh, uh, profession um, and, and the number of amazing ideas that sort of die on the table or fall by the wayside or whatever. Um, it's amazing well, what gets made and what doesn't. And, and yeah, I mean, the, that's the thing why I, I, that's why I asked because I had an instinct when I was watching it that I was like, I bet this started as a diehard joke over 25 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, this seems like, this seems like that period when we were all trying to do the diehard thing and then taking it to a ridiculous place. Uh, and what I kind of love though, is like all really good ideas. It no longer needs diehard as a touchstone like it's 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 there but you could see that movie and have no knowledge yeah. of a diehard movie ever and it would still be you know it it would still i mean because when i saw the trailer i went oh someone finally took Die Hard is a christmas movie and said <laughs> Die Hard is a christmas movie motherfucker we're gonna we're gonna ram that idea yeah, no its, debate on this one. yeah we're gonna take that idea to its its logical conclusion is that yes Die Hard is a christmas movie if it's santa claus fighting uh, you know, the Euro trash terrorist <laughs> as embodied by John Leguizamo. The irony but, is that I've now seen, obviously not as prevalent as the is Die Hard a Christmas movie, but because when the movie was first getting announced just because of the title and because they don't really make R-rated Christmas action movies, but every year yeah. there's a glut of R-rated uh, Christmas horror movies. Yeah. All the horror sites were posting out. So even once the movie was coming out and you could tell it wasn't a horror movie, like I was interviewed by Fangoria for it instead. Like people were nice. still acting like it was we're on Mick Garris's horror I'll, podcast. You know, I'll uh, <laughs> I'll I'll say it's a horror movie. I don't I think, you know, 
Santa Claus is a supernatural character and he kills a bunch of folks. If you made a Frankenstein movie where the monster isn't the bad guy, that's still a horror movie. Yeah, 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 yeah but it, it, it's such a great title, first of all. It's like yeah. the best title maybe in the history of film, Violent Night. is, <laughs> is awesome. Uh, but, I mean, I think when you name anything Violent Night, you know, it could be a, it could be a documentary about boys to men and if it's called Violent Night, Fangoria is going to want to talk to you about it. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Great yeah, title for the And the first film man. I worked on in Hollywood was Silent Deadly Silent Night Deadly Night Part the Third. Oh, the uh, third one. Better Watch Out, directed by Monty Hellman, cult film director Monty Hellman, and produced by Richard Gladstein. It was his first film, and his third, I think, is Reservoir Dogs. Wow. He was a home video executive like playing around with the idea of financing independent exploitation films. And his, he made three, then he made four and <laughs> then he made Tarantino basically, which is a pretty amazing. Most of those guys do not have that experience. No, uh, I actually hosted a screening that included uh, silent night, deadly night three. <laughs> I am, I am briefly in it. You can't really make me out, but I think I'm a paramedic in the last scene. Oh, well now I Not like I'm, I rewatch that uh, every I, year. I believe but, I'm. I believe I'm pushing. A, I believe I'm pushing a gurney in the last scene in that movie. <laughs> I had a great time. The cast was really great. Um, I got a chance to talk to Richard Beamer, and I found a way to talk about what happened to him without saying, "Man, what happened to you?" <laughs> and this was a minute before. It was interestingly enough that movie was cast by the same people that cast Twin Peaks, and it's huh. got the original series. So it's got Richard Bamer and Eric DeRay in it, who like their very next thing is the Twin Peaks pilot. And uh, Richard Bamer, I used to use his name as the name of a syndrome um, where an, a young actor gets hot, does one giant studio movie at the, as a star. And then before that movie comes out and everybody realizes he's very much not a movie star, four <laughs> other studios make movies with the guy. Bamer did The Longest Day and West Side Story and Hemingway's Adventures of a Young Man and probably two other movies that I'm forgetting. And then all of those movies came out and everyone went, whoa, 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 no. <laughs> no. Uh, in the 80s, it's, Mike, it's uh, Michael Paré syndrome. Uh, you know, the, it, it, there, it, there's always that guy who like, no, this guy's a huge movie star. He's going to be in everything. And then the public goes. Um, no, he is not. <laughs> no, he is very much not going yeah, to be. Absolutely not. Like, yeah. I feel like that even happened to Ben Affleck, but he was able to reverse court. Yeah, pull it back. Like the public, the public rejected him for a minute, and then they took him back, and then like, you know, he's got he's gone back and forth on uh, Bamer syndrome. But Richard Bamer became a cinematographer and shot a bunch of documentary stuff. I think he went to Vietnam and shot a decade. Like, he had a fascinating full life. Yeah, like, in the thirty-year gap between his two <laughs> acting careers, you know. But it was I was just like, hey man, so uh what happened? What did you start doing in the late 60s? <laughs> Which was the most polite way I could think of is when the public categorically rejected you, <laughs> how did you how did you handle that? And look, better man than I, like a lot of people that would have crushed their ego uh like a like a beer can on Steven Seagal's forehead, but uh but it did not it did not do that to him. So you know no, Seagal would have done what was the, he had his like own energy drink at that point? Yeah, in time. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he probably I, yeah, would crush yeah. that. Yeah, one second I got it. Uh -oh. And, oh, of course you do. <laughs> yeah. And Seagal's thing was that he was some studio executive's martial arts instructor. 
Yeah, he had his own. He had like a Hollywood dojo. Was it Mike Ovitz? Yeah. I feel it was someone yeah. like yeah. that. It was Mike right. Ovitz. Okay, so so I mean, this is going way back because because we drank this when we when we went to the Seagal concert, um, and then we have had some other crazy nights that maybe we shouldn't talk too much about. Uh, <laughs> that's that started out with Seagal uh, energy drink and you know and 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 other stuff. But so it's Steven Seagal's lightning bolt energy drink. Um, a natural energy drink packed with vitamins and exotic botanicals. This is uh, this is called Asian Experience. This flavor. Oh, see, like there's the there's Stephen on the cover. Yes. Sorry if you're listening. This is not great radio. Uh, this is the more popular uh, and better tasting cherry charge flavor. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, what is wait? What is his quote at the bottom of the can? Well, well it, it, yeah. I mean, that, that was it. A natural energy drink packed with vitamins and exotic botanicals, oh. and, then, and then he signed the can. I thought it was um, some like words of wisdom. Yeah, it's, well, it says this long-lasting energy elixir is made with ingredients from all over the globe. All natural Tibetan goji uh, berry, Asian cordyceps, B vitamins, ginseng, and guarana. No, I love added. that it's I love that it's Tibetan, and yet the next thing is Asian. We don't we actually don't know where the mushrooms came from, man. <laughs> I also it's interesting that he says cordyceps, which is a word that before The Last of Us I would not have recognized. Yeah, and he did not want you to know you were drinking mushrooms because that's fucking disgusting. <laughs> yeah, it is. Nobody wants that. Cordyceps sounds cool until you see The Last of Us and go. Sounds oh, like a geez. muscle. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's zombie water. Thanks. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think people would be out on that after Walking Dead yeah. with mushrooms. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's pretty. That's pretty insane. Yeah. Are, is there a plan for Violent Night Part Two? The violenting. Yeah, that was one uh, we turned in a, a a rushed draft uh, right before the strike deadline, uh -huh. which is, it, I think yeah. worked out perfectly. Where we got it done, and people were like, "Great, thank, great job, guys!" But it wasn't quite good enough to, you know be a scab movie that sure. they shoot during the strike yeah. so that made i didn't feel like a bad wga member it's called, you, both worlds. Yeah, can, it's, it's called violence or night right yeah. <laughs> no you can have this for free it's a wonderful knife uh that my friend michael kennedy wrote that movie and they <laughs> shot it last <laughs> that's, winter that's wow. great great minds think alike yeah he's, no, the guy, he's the guy who wrote a freaky so it's in that same kind of slasher movie reimagining of a he also had a back to the future one that was called slash to the future and then i think oh, they wow. retitled it time cut and i'm not they shot mm. it i'm not sure what became of that one i'm i am i am of the mind that back to the original back to the future is already a horror movie <laughs> uh on, on yeah. i always think about that ending and it's like it's worthy of richard matheson that your happy ending is that you now live with a happy family that you know nothing about and they know nothing about you. You share no He's going to spend the rest of his life with Christian, uh, or with uh, Crispin Glover saying, hey, remember that great vacation we took in Italy? No, man, no, I don't remember that at all. Are you okay, Marty? I remember nothing about that. I only remember my horrible childhood where you were a friggin' loser and my mom was a drunken whore. But it, it was the Reagan. It was Reaganomics, man. Oh, he doesn't totally. care about that. He got a cooler truck. That's <laughs> totally. all he cared about. But check it, check out that four by four. Yeah. But that's one of those things, like too big of a science fiction fan, even in 85 or whenever that movie came out, that last scene, I went, wait, what? Like, how is that? A <laughs> Unless he is suddenly flooded with memories he shares with these people. That's horrible. Like he's in a, he's in hell. You know they have money now. <laughs> yeah, right. No, that's all that matters. That Dad wrote a book. 
dad yeah. wrote a book. Oh, dad damn wrote it. A hit book. Yeah, yeah, and you got that really ugly ass truck now. I just uh, uh, that was so funny to me. Uh, everyone said there are things like that. Like you know, I saw Manhattan in 1979, and I was 14 year olds, and went, "No one should be having sex with that child woman in this movie." What the hell, man? Like, at a, as a 14 year old, I was like, "She's too young for me." What is wrong with you, you creepy old fuck? And I liked the movie. Like, in no, 19- I had the same reaction. I wasn't 14, yeah. but... In 1979, it didn't throw me out of the movie, but every scene I was like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> but anyway, all of that to say, the the we will look forward to uh, Violent or Night or the Santa Inn <laughs> or whatever, you know, uh, Santa Harder or, uh, you know, Santa with Vengeance. Um, but, uh, but how about the... Uh, how did the Sonic thing come about? Were you always a fan of that? Or was that a, was yeah, that I mean, let's bring in 30 guys to pitch on this? It was definitely, it was, it was both. Like, I can't pretend that I spent my whole life wanting to make a Sonic movie. I mean, also in part that just for whatever reason, our, our writing, my writing partner and I, Pat, like we don't have a lot of like IP that we've always wanted to a couple things, mm. but uh, we usually lean more towards original ideas uh but sonic 2 was definitely one of the games i played the most as a kid because you know kid kids these days are spoiled they don't realize how few home console games there were that you could play at the same time with your friend usually it was like you'd be mario and you'd die and then you're you'd have to sit there and watch your friend be luigi until he died and then you know maybe some people liked it i thought it was had that experience uh, but so I love that Sonic 2, you could play with two people. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But no, that was, uh, I mean, it wasn't even an open writing assignment. Initially, we had a general meeting with Toby Asher, who um, still works at original uh, Neil Moritz's company. And, you know, classic thing, you're in a, someone's office and they have stuff hanging on the wall. And he had enough Sonic related things that, I would have been surprised if it, he was just obsessed with Sonic. We're like, are you making a Sonic movie? And he's like, yeah, um, we've already got writers though. You know, like it's along the way. Uh, we, you know, we made some kind of intimation to the idea that if they ever need new writers, cause you know, we knew how big Hollywood movies work. They usually just kind of throw writers at a problem <laughs> rather than yeah, keep yeah. working with the same Sorry people. Yeah. yeah. Which uh, it sucks, but I guess it, in some instances, if you, if you're on the other end of it, it's good. Mm. And this was one though, where they, it wasn't even, they decided they wanted to rewrite. I think they realized that they were going too meta with the original version and wanted to just kind of start over and see what else they could do with it. And I guess we succeeded and then it didn't even occur to us to make it meta. Uh, I, and I feel like we get, and it, we get, too much credit for the idea that we cracked the video game adaptation code because I always point out, I'm like, I don't know, I loved the first Mortal Kombat movie in the yeah, 90s. I, I feel like people had already successfully been cracking the code, but I guess we cracked the code at least in the sense that in our minds, if you're adapting Moby Dick, you don't, someone doesn't need to be reading the book Moby Dick and a whale shoots out of the pages. No one's going to be like, but it's a book. Isn't the audience going to be like, but that's a book. <laughs> Don't we have to address that it's a book? But it did seem like with a lot of people doing video games, I think, especially probably older execs who weren't gamers, they couldn't just view a video game as 
IP, like a story. You can't just right, be like yeah, Sonic's yeah. a character. He's like Bugs Bunny or anybody else. <clears throat> um, but yeah, but that was just uh, when they started looking for new writers. And then we did have to do a bit of a bake off where they weren't yeah. just meeting with us. But I think because we are essentially nobodies, even though been working for over 10 years at that point. Yeah. And we were meeting with Toby originally because he was fans of our short lived animated show, which is behind me there. Goal yeah. and the insatiable. But as far as feature Big credits, time. we did not have anything. Hey, stop stabbing was probably still our most notable thing since our, mm -hmm. our I, 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 a, a lot of dorm days fans. Out yeah. There, I was going to say some, uh, some national lampoons yeah. dorm days trilogy, yeah. <laughs> but those yeah. are usually movies we would attempt to <clears throat> not bring up if someone hadn't heard of it. Um, but I think because we'd met with him on a, a general, we were kind of able to get our foot in the bake off where I think normally that we, they never would have gone out to people at our level. Yeah. It, it, it's, it, it's such an interesting thing. I mean, I, I think this will segue into one of the, the primary things that I wanted to cover with you. I mean, because I think that you and I have similar stories where, you know, again, I mean, I, I as I said, like we've known each other for near 20 years now. And um, and we were kind of just starting our careers off when when we met in this same place, working you know with these same producers, um, and there were a lot of people around back then, right? Like mm -hmm. people 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 that were talented, people that were driven, uh, uh, you know, people that um, had credits, all of those things. And I would say, I don't know, like to say ninety five, like ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight percent of those people are gone. You know, they, they, maybe they're smarter than us. Maybe they wised up and, <laughs> and they're like, look, if I worked this hard at anything else, I would be a billionaire right now. And, and they wow. went off and, and, and made their money and they're living a nice stable life and, um, driving Teslas and, you know, uh, uh, living in a six bedroom house, uh, somewhere where, you know, um, where a six bedroom house can be had for 150,000. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> maybe, maybe 8 million. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they're just smarter than us, but, um, but you know, again, like I, 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 I felt for the longest time I felt this kinship with you because I think that we've we've gone about it the same way, where it's like we've we've had our successes, uh, 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 we've we've probably been on the two yard line with big things like I don't know more times than we can count, and and the way this business works, it doesn't, you know, it just doesn't punch in, uh, but somehow. Uh, I, I, you know, in, in the, in the green room, I called us the cockroaches of the business. <laughs> like you can't, you can't get rid of us. Um, but, 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 but how, you know, how did you hang in? Like how, you know what I'm saying? Because I think it took some patience. Uh, it, it, it took some, some Zen, it took some insanity, all of these things. And it, it is nice to finally see it like, you know, again, you've had your successes over the years. I don't, I don't mean to downplay that, but I feel like, I feel like you got yours finally as, as you should have gotten yours. Like, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, last year, two big hit movies that everybody really embraced. Um, uh, now when you walk into rooms, uh, you're, you're not those writers in a bake off. You have people come to you being like, Hey, what do you want to do? You know, you have people come to you first, all of those things. So, 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 how do you hang in for 20 years? <laughs> I mean, I do think on a certain level, it does help when, and I don't mean that I've never wanted to do anything else yeah. dream wise. Cause I think that's probably everyone who comes up, but you're talking about people were, you know, realizing, Oh, if I put this much effort into anything else, I'd be crushing it at, you know, this law firm. Yeah. Um, I definitely felt like I wasn't even, I don't even know what that other thing 
would have been like I could have gone down. I mean, like we both have. It's like other avenues in arts and entertainment. And maybe I've been like, oh, I'll become like an I'll just write books or something. But that yeah. I mean, that's not any easier. So yeah. uh, but and then I think another key thing, though, is like one of my favorite things I read at, at a formative years uh, in early high school was Roger Corman's autobiography, How I Made 100 Movies and Never Lost a Dime. Whatever reason, I've always really romanticized the kind of just like low budget journeyman filmmaker, you know, where it's just yeah. just sort of like a job or even in the old school studio days where people just, you know, had like a bungalow on the lot back when that wasn't even that impressive. I always think it's funny. You talk to like older writers and they'll joke about how bad their office was on the Paramount lot. And I'm like, you had an office on the lot. <laughs> on, on the Paramount lot. Yeah. You've written yeah. three Sonic the Hedgehog movies. They're not going to give us an office. That like doesn't yeah. happen anymore. They, I think there was just less people vying for them. Uh, but, you know, the idea that uh, you'll hear these stories, although I'm, I'm using John Melius as an example, who obviously was a huge success. So not quite the same, but I always loved the story that the producer of Hunt for Red October was trying to get uh, Sean Connery to be in the movie and Sean Connery read the script and he liked it, but he was like, I don't know if it's like that, if it's like star power enough character. And the guy was like, realized that Melius was just in the office across the hall. And he's like, what if I got John Melius to write you a speech? Again, not, not the best example because these are all huge, successful people, but just like that style of like just being in the business and it's just kind of a job and you do it. So even though I didn't like that, I had no money <laughs> um, yeah. and I was lived in a studio apartment for way too like late in age like a yeah. really small studio apartment <laughs> i feel like you know yeah, but that that honestly that's the smart play i mean i have two things one is i have a friend tamara taylor is a great actress you know 30 years ago people should have been smart and made her a great movie star but she's done great on tv she's a huge star now on television but when she got uh the gig being a regular on <laughs> bones she lived in a two-bedroom apartment in North Hollywood that she had had her whole time as a as a struggling actress. She stayed in that two-bedroom apartment for two or three seasons. And then she rented a house for two or three seasons. And then she bought a house with I've Been a TV Star for six or seven seasons money. <laughs> yeah. The thing that's always the goofball fucking idiot move is you get cast in a TV series, you shoot three episodes... And you buy an eight million dollar house on Mulholland Drive for a show that's going to be canceled before your you know beard comes in. So it's it's a it's it's a smart thing. And the other thing I'll say, and this is the uh, the more serious thing, I wrote an essay when I was still struggling pretty hard, but I was mostly making my living as a low budget film producer and as an editor, I was doing AD work occasionally, a little acting. I wrote an essay called "Success or the Called Bluff." And there are people who, a lot of people, come out here and they've said since they were teenagers, I just want to be involved in making movies. I'll sweep the stage. I'll bring coffee. I'll do whatever. And a point comes, but secretly, deep down inside, they're going to be Spielberg next. Like, <laughs> that's what's really going to happen. And you know what? I got past the coffee and sweeping stage within the first year. But... uh you know, as I said in this essay, I wake up every morning and I make my coffee and I sit down at my computer and I make movies. And uh, am I very well compensated for it? Fuck no. 
Does anybody <laughs> see these independent movies I make? Yeah, the occasional festival, win an occasional award, whatever. But I wake up every morning and I am making movies. And there was a time when I said that's all I wanted out of life. And for all the frustrations of it, I wasn't bluffing. I will do this, you know, difficult thing forever if I need to. I'm lucky that in 2014, I got an opportunity to write a comic book that turned into what we will laughingly call a successful career in comics, <laughs> which ironically led back to me now being employable as a film writer and television writer because 30 years of making indie films, fuck you, don't know anything about making movies. Oh, you're a comic book writer. Let's hear what you have to say. <laughs> yeah. Like the most underpaid writers in any industry. And now, honestly, within the last three, four years, I've had some opportunities to write prose. I'm doing that now. I'm going to write a novella before the end of the year. Somebody asked. So I'm going to, I said yes. So it's like being, having that sort of like protean career where you're like, you know what? I'm going to make the low budget slasher movie. You know, the first two movies I made in Hollywood, I ghost wrote and ghost directed two Andy Sedaris movies. That was better in film school. Wow. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. And I still meet people who are like, you wrote Hard Hunted? Yes. Yes, I did. Uh, <laughs> you know, have I ever had anyone say that to me about any of the f festival darlings I worked on? Fuck no. <laughs> but, you those, know. Those Sedaris wow. movies matter. <laughs> you worked with Julie Strain? Yes. Yes, I did. Uh, I, yeah. I, 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 I remember before you and I were really tight, Apollonia, and I, I interviewed you on something. And, uh, and, and there were the standard career questions or whatever. Right. And then it was time for me to slip one in and I, and, and with a giant goofy fucking grin on my face, I'm like, tell us some Andy Sedaris stories. You know? <laughs> uh, and, 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 it, you know, it was 15 minutes of riveting content, but, uh, but wow, it is funny you. how these things strike a chord, you know? Look, you're not, Dan Harmon once bought, once bought me dinner to hear Andy Sedaris stories. <laughs> like, it's not, you are, that is, that is a familiar we i went to see the community uh paley center thing with uh james urbaniak while i'm dropping names and uh harman went out to dinner with us all with a handful of us and some of his writers later and uh and urbaniak was, who knew was like so dan did you know that david worked on andy sedaris film <laughs> and dan went holy shit really you gotta tell me about that you gotta tell me everything you never you remember about that experience so uh, you know, and and look, I worked at I worked for Roger Corman. I made three, four movies. No, probably more than that. Uh, down at Roger Corman Studios, mostly as a grip and as a second unit key grip. I will tell you the story. You know that famously you weren't allowed to use Dolly Track because Dolly Track is too time consuming. Yeah, we're losing, we're losing <laughs> money. Uh, I was second unit key grip on some Don the Dragon Wilson movie. They were off rehearsing a fight. And the director said to me, we want this 20 foot long dolly move. And you know, it's three in the morning in Venice, California, and I'm alone because it's second unit. So I start laying and leveling 20 feet of dolly track. <laughs> Unbeknownst to me, Roger is there editing something and I feel his Frankensteinian presence behind me. Cause he is an enormous, yeah. somewhat terrifying man in the yeah. dark. <laughs> you know? And like he throat clears and I see him and I know exactly what he's going to say. And I said, Roger, or I said, sir, probably. They're off rehearsing the fight scene. The minute the dragon and the director get back to set, it's as level as it's ever going to be. I'm, I swear to you, I'm not wasting any time like this. And he went, okay, then. 
Yeah. And I said something that probably endeared me to him. I said, because the bumps in the dally track don't show up on the video box. And he said, that is exactly <laughs> correct, son. <laughs> you know, like, he, was, he, he gave a little laugh and he was like, that's, that's the attitude, son. Nobody's going to notice the bumps. And we'll use the part of the dally track with no bumps in it in the trailer. That's, you know, I only need 20 frames of this dolly move for the trailer. So, uh, but yeah, that was a, I mean, and that, that was a, an absolute factory and, you know, uh, but, but good times working, you know, yeah, w- w- looking at the horizon, willing the sun to come up so that the, the night shoot had to end, you know, uh, when we'd been at it 20 it's still, hours. It still baffles me to this day that I briefly went to college out in LA at Loyola Marymount um, for two years. And I only tried to get one internship again. This was just, you know, several years after being obsessed with Corman's autobiography. Mm. And I knew he was still around, but I feel like for whatever reason, I didn't know enough about the industry to realize that he still was cranking out movies at the level he always had. In my mind, the new Roger Corman for my generation was Charles Band, who'd run Empire and then Full Moon. And so the only internship I tried to get, I got their info back. However, people did things in the late 90s, although I did. I did send an email. Um, I remember that, and, but they responded back that they don't do internships. And really now looking back, I must have phrased it in some, cause I'm just like, in my mind, I was like, you don't want free labor. Yeah, you famously <laughs> underpay or don't pay people. I'm, yeah. I'm offering it up, but I have some feeling they must've gotten in trouble. Cause I bet that if I just came in off the street and was like, I want to work on your movie for free. My mistake was, is I was a student and I was referring to it as like a student internship. Yeah. I bet College they got busted yeah. for like. They were probably thinking they would have to fill out papership and yeah, give you exactly. a letter grade and a bunch of. <laughs> you know what? Do you know what Charlie Brand Band is up to right now? A friend of mine's been shooting movies for him in three days. Uh, oh wow! And I, mean, I really, knew he was still kind of. That sounds movie, incredible. The movies are single location, soft core gay erotic thrillers and horror. Oh, oh, I had heard yeah. that. That's right. That is, that, is, yeah. that is the content. My old friend Howard Wexler, who's like a real, not related to Haskell, is a real veteran, a Sedaris veteran of the of the low-budget indie wars. Every once in a while, he tells me he's doing a three-day shoot for a band. <laughs> and, you know, he knows I was, even when I was always looking for work, he's like, they can't afford you. Like, you know, like to edit this thing or to direct it or to do any of that. I, I like, I, I, I assume it's the still case, uh, still the case, but for like, you know, I don't know, for the last 20 years, Charles Band is just at Comic Con at the full moon table, just sitting mm-hmm. there, you know, and you can walk up to him and just, you know, hey, robot jacks, you know. Um, uh, I think Lloyd Kaufman was more of the, the Corman, uh, you know he's yeah, just yeah. That, that was when I thought it, yeah, yeah but but he's like New York Corman I mean it's it's, well, it's he also it's, Lloyd ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the films are pickups he doesn't make a lot of yeah. films yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. your indie slasher movie and he gives you five hundred dollars for it if he if that yeah well yeah well, well, well that was the thing is so so I was you know I, I mean I I worked for Hal Hartley in New York for for a period of time and I remember uh, I I had a friend Sarah who was um who was interning. Uh, for for Lloyd Kaufman at the time, and I brought her over to the Hal Hartley offices. We were just sitting around uh, chatting with Matt, and uh, uh, Matt was um, 
was one of house producers and we're sitting around talking and and he's like so you're uh you're working for lloyd kaufman huh he's like he he offered me three thousand dollars for my first film <laughs> and, and it's just, just literally at the number of people that i've met that lloyd kaufman has offered three thousand dollars for their their feature film is like i, like I would that need that probably a three specific years. number that's it's, a that's a pretty that's a that's a pretty big number for lloyd i'll yeah, tell probably. my favorite i'll tell my favorite lloyd story because this is why i will always love him I made a karate movie called, well, an action movie called Kick of Death for $15,000. Oh, that's that's wasn't a title even, right there. It <laughs> wasn't even my $15,000. It was someone else's. Someone gave me $15,000 to make an action movie. thing has a ton of action scenes in it. It's ridiculous. Shot it in three days. It's gay no, erotica. It's very good. I'm just saying. 13. 13 days of shooting on $15,000. But... Um, Lloyd owned it for a while. He picked it up from David Hevner to drop another fantastic name. Awesome. And uh, I ran into him at Comic-Con and mentioned, oh, I, I see you're uh, distributing Kick of Death now. I wrote and directed that. And the best thing about this story to me is without pause, without flicker, without a blink, Lloyd Kaufman looking me around and they said, Kick of Death is the greatest motion picture ever made. <laughs> like just deadpan. Like, oh, hey, Lloyd, I made uh, I made Kick of Death. I wrote and directed that. Kick of Death is the finest motion picture anyone has ever made. Don't anyone, don't let anyone tell you any different. And the fact that he has that fucking preloaded to say to the hundreds of people who walk up to him and say the same thing, he's sort of this in every way, and I mean in every way, he is the Stan Lee of exploitation films. Yeah. He's just the fucking... He's invaluable. He's a giant crook and invaluable as a cheerleader. Well, but he's yeah, yeah, but he's remarkably intelligent. Also, I, oh, yeah. I, 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 I've, sh I've shaken hands with him a couple of times, but I actually had like, I had a substantial, probably fifteen minute conversation with him one time, uh, uh, and we talked about Hamlet. We 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 we, 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 we talked about the intricacies of Hamlet, like for fifteen minutes, and he was throwing like hundred and six mile an hour heat. Um, and then, and well, he and, did make it, Romeo and Juliet. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, with James Gunn. That's what I was yeah, going to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then, but but then we get interrupted. I'm about to walk away, and he's like, "Hey, no, 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 wait!" And he reaches back, and he had just written this book on filmmaking, uh, and he takes a copy of his book, and he writes, "To thine own self be true," and <laughs> and signs like Kaufman, and he hands it to me. I still have Amazing. the book. Yeah, I, I, my my fifteen minute Hamlet uh, dissertation from from Lloyd Kaufman. It was yeah, uh, yeah, an interesting the, those dude. kind of moments. I once yeah. talked about the Gnostic Gospels with Dennis Hopper for about fifteen minutes. That's more <laughs> expected, though. And that was a, that was a, that was a wild friggin' experience. Yeah. Uh, oh, man, he and and Dennis, Dennis Hopper. It's that actor thing, man. He quoted scripture off the top of his friggin' head paragraphs of it he's like yeah there's that thing in the revelation of james where he says and i was like holy shit man i read it too but i didn't i didn't put the fucking thing to memory jesus uh but he was also really glad to meet anyone who had read or experienced the gnostic gospels he thought that was just some heavy shit but uh yeah the other the, the final thing about lloyd i will say is i did write him into my elvira comics the exploitation filmmaker yeah. that the character the character of elvira works with is named lloyd mankoff uh so he he he, sh he shows up every couple of issues uh making some shitty dracula movie on video yeah. 
<laughs> but, but, but yeah, but, but, but so, so, so we were, I, I, you know, uh, but we digress and this is a, a show of digressions, but I want to get back to this, this hanging around for, for, for 20 years, because I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, it's funny cause I, I, I approached you to come on and talk about the guild strike. We've been covering it a lot. We've had some great conversations about it with people and, and, and we should talk about that before we get you off because that was what you signed up for. Uh, uh, but, but I think the rest of your, your, your story is, is so fascinating and, and like, um, like us, you love this stuff. And I think that kind of without actually answering the question, we have answered the question, like how and why does one stick around for 20 years? It's because you have to kind of like live and breathe and fucking, you know, and eat and shit this stuff. Like, I, I think that, um, uh, you know, I mean, you're not just a writer around here. Like you're in LA and you're hosting these screenings. You're having these conversations with people like you. Yeah. You, I think that's even yeah. thinking back uh, in David's story about how he came up and then going into comics. And that actually led back is it maybe a more succinct way of what I was trying to say before is I just like making stuff. And yeah. again, I think it's different if you wanted to be Steven Spielberg or if you're an actor and you want to be a movie star versus just, a character actor uh, where I was looking at like ice T and obviously a weird example since he was a super famous rapper and that's why he became an actor. But I love the fact that he is never going to leave his TV show is a lot like they can make it until he's 90 and he just keep doing it. Cause he's just like, this is a good gig. Yeah. Like, why would I stop? He doesn't have like, Oh, I'm going to become a, I'm going to be, you know, David Caruso or whatever and leave NYPD blue immediately yeah. to, to become a movie star you know that's uh, but, what jerry jerry orbach said that about the law and order gig like someone was asking sure. him like you really want to do this for the rest of your life and he's like why i put on the same jacket i got about 30 lines an episode and i go home and i have a beautiful house and i got yeah. a lot of time on my hand in new york and he literally died in his fucking law yeah, like it, doesn't, doesn't, it does not get better for an actor than being jerry yeah. orbach on law and order at the end of your career like, yeah and, and, yeah yeah and that was a sense i got i guess and, and and maybe i shouldn't be answering this question for you josh but like but it i i i got the sense from the moment i met you and and th this is what i've been wrestling with for for the last you know i don't know uh uh a week or or let's say a couple of weeks when I, I sort of got the sense to to call you on is that um it's weird because I met you 20 years ago and again there were a ton of people around but there was something different you know and I I, I think we meet and maybe you had the same sort of inclination you know when when you met me but you know you I mean you you meet a thousand fucking people a, a year in this town and there are certain people that the moment you meet them you're like oh yeah that that guy's that guy's a person he's gonna be around he's uh he's an actor in this play right and, and I think that that was a sense is that I, I and I still get it from you that if 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 Hollywood said, hey, we don't want you around, get the fuck out of here. And and if somebody tied you to a fucking rocket ship and shot you back to Minnesota or whatever, you would still be making fucking movies in your backyard. You know what I'm saying? Because like, you know, I, I don't know if we're mentally ill. I don't know if it's a sickness we both have <laughs> or what. It's a little bit different for me. Like maybe I'd be making, but, but it's like, I, I have stories inside me that I need to fucking tell. Um, and it's not even to say that they're, you know, they're even these like profound life-changing fucking, you know, uh, uh, things like, you know, entertaining people is fucking awesome. And it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's the, the greatest, you know, profession you can have. I am worried I'm going to die with stories inside of me. So like, yeah. I, I, so, so, so when, when, you know, over the years, when, when Hollywood has said like, Hey, 
um, you know, we're going to pay you, but we're not going to make these, <laughs> you know, um, I had to start to diversify my bonds. Like I, I had to start making comics. I had to start writing fiction. I had to, you know, okay, well I, I need to get these stories out of me. Right. Uh, uh, somehow, some way, or I am literally going to fucking like have a heart attack. You know, I am worried I'm going to die with stories inside of me. I need to fucking spill these things out of me. And so it's like this, um, I don't know. It's this, um, it's almost this fucking like death march, you know. It's like it's the the the, the red badge of, 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 of courage. It's like the um, not red badge of courage. It's um, um... bridge on the river Kwai. <laughs> <laughs> no, the three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. No, 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 no. What, what is the what is the book where the two dogs die and 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 the second dog is about to die and he doesn't just die he has to crawl to the grave of the second dog and he doesn't die until he's literally laying on the grave. What is the name of the book? Look, sounds depressing. Where the red fern? Where the red fern grows? Oh, okay. Oh, I I had to read that. I mean, they read that to us. Like yeah, I have no I have no memory of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is the shit you have to do before you die, right? And it's not enough to exist. And yeah, I I again like if if I had put this much this much energy uh into doing almost anything else, I think I would be rich. Uh I think I would be very happy. Uh, I very unhappy. I think I would be like a complete asshole. Not yeah. to say that I haven't that I haven't been a complete asshole <laughs> uh, at, at certain times over over the years. I'm that's, sure Josh has seen some of that even, but yeah. That's the difference. And you see people, I remember reading an interview with, um, Oh, what's it? Barry Sonnefeld after uh, wild, wild West crashed and burned where he said, no one will let me make a movie anymore. And if I was sitting in his living room interviewing him, I would have looked around and said, sell a piece of furniture, fuckhead, and make a movie for $50,000. What the fuck is, no one's let, Sell that, move into a smaller house and make eight movies with the money you made from selling this fucking mansion. What is wrong with you? No one's going to let you a multi-million. What you mean is no studios will let you play with Will Smith and ruin his life anymore. That's <laughs> actually what you mean. You don't mean no one. And, you know, I'm sure Barry Sonnenfeld is a nice guy and he's going through a bad time, whatever. But that ma- that enraged me. I was like, the movies I would make with the money in your fucking savings account, it blows my mind that you think you can't make a movie right now. And so few successful, quote unquote, people put money where mouth is. The guy who wrote, I can't remember his name, the guy who wrote Pretty Woman took the money that he got from selling the screen and went out and made an indie film for $200,000. I have enormous respect for that. People who sit around going, oh, you know, Richard Gere in the studio ruined my movie and then don't take all of that money Richard Gere in the studio (laughs) gave you to go make your own goddamn. Well, you don't want to make goddamn movies. You want to make money and let other people do it. And it's like there's that thing. And I think that it's it, it is really a dividing line in our industry of there are people who do this because they love it and they want to do it. And there are people who do it because they think it's sexy and glamorous and they you know i i produced a low budget movie once and i had a producer foisted upon me who prior to producing the movie had been a very nice guy but this was a movie we're making for maybe two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and he was one of three producers and he was mostly handling like the fundraising he wasn't handling the day-to-day on the set but i was ading it as well as producing it and we were in a kitchen on a location and i was working on my shot list with the director and we were doing a bunch of stuff and he walked into the kitchen and said, is there coffee? And I said, no, craft service is going to get here for another half hour. And he said, well, is, can someone make coffee? 
<laughs> and I said, yeah, you. You're the only <laughs> one in this room that has nothing to do. But he thought, no, I took this gig. I wanted to be a movie producer because movie producers get people to make coffee for them. That is not the reason to be a fucking movie producer is you want people to bring coffee to you, go to a Starbucks. That's not, that's not what making movies, making movies is not, oh, here's your seat, sir. Here's your coffee, sir. That isn't the gig. You know, it's too that's important what, to make coffee. Yeah. And, and again, on that, like literally the people in the kitchen were me and the director of my wife, who was the costume designer, who was like literally sewing a garment someone was going to wear that day. And the line producer who was balancing the books on his laptop. And this fucker who had no responsibilities walked into the room and said, can someone make me coffee? <laughs> it's just like, and it's that ultimate power corrupts thing of like, no, you wanted this because you wanted people to make coffee for you. And that is not, you should not be here for this, you know, for that. And look, the number of times I have seen, and I will not name any famous names, but, I used to get mad when I would see someone who I thought wasn't very talented get really successful and they'd make one indie film that was a big hit, but it was mostly a hit because of the work of other people. And they'd get a five, you know, five picture deal with Miramax announced. And I learned over time, those five movies never got made, are never going to get made. And you wouldn't be mad because that guy does not have five ideas. You know what I mean? And he, yeah. <laughs> first, he hands in by himself without the co-writer he ditched who made the indie movie that you loved. No one's going to want to buy that movie. You know, you see this all the time. People shed talented collaborators because they think it's all me. And then you never hear from them again. Or you hear from when they come back, someone else has written everything, you know, mm -hmm. because they don't have, they don't have stories to tell, actually. You know, the best thing about comic books, I will say, is that the absolute grind of deadlines turns you into a story producing factory like i gotta have a new plot idea every week and a half that is not a problem you have when you're writing feature scripts that is no. not you know <laughs> like you get a little more time to work on stuff uh i gotta do beginning 20 pages beginning and middle end about every two and a half weeks or i starve to death <laughs> you know so that's uh it's an interesting and you gotta if you don't love it man that is not a thing to sign up for <laughs> no yeah. gotta love it i think and especially before, you know, it'd be great if, yeah, if you're Barry Seinfeld and you'd be like, maybe I'll make a $1 million movie. Um, but before you're successful, I think you just have to have a, and I guess it's tough if there's only one thing you really can do, but then I also question if maybe movies is not quite where you should be if you really only have this one lane. Uh, but if you have to have kind of a have gun will travel attitude, Again, looking at the three of us and our stories, I feel it's like, you know, I want to write movies. It's not quite working out. Oh, maybe I'll go do this thing that's not really even that similar to writing movies. Like, right. When when the indie filmmakers I'd been doing all the Dorm Days movies for, the 2008, um, you know, global financial crisis hit them hard because, and speaking of, you know, indie people you resent, I... I've gotten over it, but I really in the 2000s was annoyed by like quote unquote indie movies at Sundance that mm -hmm. were like Fox Searchlight and had movie stars yeah. and stuff. I'm like, it's yeah. not an indie movie. The guys I'm making movies for, their movies are all funded by like 20 different dentists and retirees yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Like that's my, an indie my movie. Film, 
my film my film teacher in college who became one of my best friends old lithuanian guy named adolphus mekis first thing he said in film 101 was to be a filmmaker you must have very good teeth and everybody <laughs> stares at him he's like because you're going to borrow money from your dentist, dentist. and you're never going to, you're never going to be able to pay him back that's so amazing. you're going to have to be able to not go to dentist for three to ten years <laughs> You know, because you have you have gone to all dentists and they have given you money and you now you have this guy. You go, uh, go back to your your dentist, but yeah, he he was not wrong about that. And yeah, no. I feel I feel the same way when I would see like like what was that one movie? The kids are all right. Like it's an oh, with movie. The, with uh, Annette Benning, you're in the your indie movie stars Annette Benning. How nice for you. You know, like, uh, and I get that there's tears. Like, Meryl Streep or Glenn Close. I can't remember who her co-star is, but I'm like, yeah. Well, it, on, yeah, it, yeah. It, it is like, like indie movie became like a popular genre. Really, it's like you know, uh, you, you well, know, you, you have every studio sitting down like, what indie movies are we making uh, 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 this year? Yeah, yeah. no, exactly. So. And it just became and honestly, a term in the '90s. I mean, yeah. like, like alternative music in the '90s, where that was funny because I'm like, they called it that because it was literally the other category yeah. at the record shop now it's somehow a musical style that doesn't even make sense well, and also as as when people. alternative is the most popular music it is literally the thing from which you have no alternatives that's the yeah that that kind of branding always always killed me and now as we've talked about on this show before i feel like the 90s indie film movement early aughts indie, it's all on television mm-hmm. the bear would have been an indie film you know, White mm. Lotus would have been an indie film. Uh, I think it would have been better as an indie film, but that's another story. Uh, you know, a lot of the quote-unquote auteurs of uh, of that field, the smart ones, uh, got deals with streamers and made yeah. and made films that way uh, so, because yeah. closer to the aesthetic. Yeah. So, 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 so this, I, I mean, you're you're heading in an interesting direction, Josh. So, I mean, it's like, um, I mean the the last writer strike, you know, uh, uh, happens right before that financial crisis. Right. Were you Were you in the guild for the last yeah. strike? Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 I, 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 okay. So yeah, I, I, I mean, I was, and in fact, you know, it was, it was, I had, um, you know, I, I, I had two films again on the two yard line. They were, they were about to get made and, uh, and then the strike happened and, and, you know, again, like they, they rushed a lot of movies into production, uh, you know, because if you got into production before the strike, you could continue to shoot, anything that wasn't in production before couldn't shoot. And so my movies get categorized as post-strike movies. And a lot of those post-strike movies just never got picked up. And so, so yeah, I mean, it was, for me, it was like, um, it's funny because I think we both had to reinvent ourselves after this time period, because for me, it was, you know, for me, it was, I I was on the precipice. I was about to, I was, I was making, you know, I, I was writing movies for studios and they were, they were about to go. And then, financial crisis writer strike wipes all of that out and i literally have to remake the wheel you were you were in this nice indie pocket and then suddenly that is gone but even then that yeah because yeah. it wasn't about the strike that one was about yeah. financial it, but, but 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 they all, but all they, these but, dentists yeah. had to sell their like summer <laughs> yeah. homes and so no, they weren't they, throwing they, money at the the irony is i yeah. had a movie that was a good this is a go for october of 2008 and it yeah. was being fired. It was being financed entirely through stock sales. Yeah, nice. So, wow. But the irony, but the irony is that was a great script, and that yeah. spec, that unmade script, was the writing sample that caused my colleague to recommend me as a comic book writer. 
So like and, it's served and for, the, yeah, and it's so served when, a career advantage. It should still be made someday. It's a very good script, but it served its own weird little career advancement. Uh, when I had the uh, same thing, not literally that, but when the indie guys we were working for suddenly couldn't get, and they had a whole bunch of other stuff that happened with them that was more their fault probably, but it all, it all kind of stemmed from the same thing where they're, they, they were really good at raising that kind of money. Like, and that was kind of their true talent in a sense. Uh, and once they weren't really able to utilize that, we we're like, well, what do we do now? And my writing partner, he got a job as like a video game tester, which is a perfect example of a job that sounds awesome if you don't actually know what that job is, but the job yeah. itself is monotonous and horrible. People just think of like, wow, you're getting paid to have fun playing video games. Like, no, you're getting paid to like press your character into the wall in every room to see if you can accidentally go through it and write down the bugs you find. But he was doing that. And so, I was, so, so Pat was a video game tester? Is yeah. that, am I following that? That's really yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, like, I, and, and you guys had a couple of movies made at that point, and 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 yeah, Pat's had, going to work as a yeah, three as Dorm a, Days movies, a video game We'd done a, one about a video game tester because Pat had we had this was before Pat was doing it. He got that job because we had friends who'd been video game testers. We wrote yeah. a movie called Game Box 1.0. Oh wow, uh, that had video game testing in it. But during this phase, while he was doing that, again, the kind of have gun will travel. I'm like, well, I don't want like I don't want to get that kind of job. Let me see if I can find something writing. So I started doing like film journalism and I started yeah, yeah. doing like one-off comedy pieces for various websites. Uh, and both of those avenues actually like led to interesting things. And our animated show goal and the insatiable specifically that started as a character I created doing one-off articles for something awful.com and nice. Dan Belgoyan, who was part of the whole yeah. Keith, crew uh he also was at the steven seagal <laughs> show yeah, yeah. with us yeah. um he was like you should turn that into a tv show and i was like that sounds great i have no idea how yeah. to do that but he found a way to do it he wasn't involved nice. with the show but he because we didn't even have agents at the time we were just yeah. kind of going from like person to person you know like we'd write a movie for one person and one of the financers from that was like i want to write a movie for my son and we're like yeah. wow this sounds like it'll never happen but we'll take your few thousand dollars to pay the rent sir i i i, I love those jobs so much i mean it was you know it was around the same time and you would meet somebody and it, it was like writing by mad lips almost where it's like you'd be like okay so you know we got this guy and he has real estate money uh he wants uh he has access to a helicopter so he wants two helicopter scenes at least. Uh, he wants lesbians. He wants vampires. And, uh, you know, uh, we have access to a closed prison. Uh, so here's $5,000, write a movie. <laughs> but that's but, how my brain works now, though. Like, that's how many great movies have been made yeah. that way. Yeah. Like, I North by Northwest. North by Northwest is Hitchcock sitting down with Michael Lehman and going, I see a chase across the face of Mount Rushmore. I see a guy getting chased by a copter plane and a murder at the United Nations. Yep. Turn that into a whole thing. You yep. know? And we the Andy Sedaris movies were absolutely that way of like, there's this guy who has this auto gyro and I want to yep. shoot in Sedona. And this guy's in this guy's in uh, Arizona. So we're gonna do this auto gyro chase through the pinnacles of Sedona. Fantastic. I actually find it stifling now yeah. to be working on a movie where they're just like 
make stuff up, whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah, I need some limitations. Yeah, those, those, yeah. Those, yeah. Parameters, those parameters are so great. And yeah. you know that that thing that you're talking about. I always say that freelance writers. One of the reasons we really like Private Eye stories is we absolutely have the same lives. Yeah, <laughs> especially when we're broke. Every single freelance writer has had to get up in a shitty apartment, put a clean shave on, shake the one suit that's clean, get in their shitty car, drive to Beverly Hills, and sit in some multimillionaire's living room while they are told how they can make the multimillionaire's life better. You know, or it's a multimillionaire on a movie studio lot, but it's that same thing of like, I am a pauper here to be the specialist that's going to solve whatever personal problem you have write yeah. salome for you you know uh norma desmond you know it's it, it's such <laughs> a thing that we have all done well and, and 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 at the highest level i mean when 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 at the highest level that we have worked i, I mean dick Ron and i did a movie with justin lynn you know and it was right on the heels of of fast six uh you know fast and furious six it was the largest opening in universal summer history might might even still be he's the hottest director in town we're writing a big action movie for him and we are fucking excited. We sit down with them the first day and we have all these, we have all these, all these thematics mapped out, you know, all this character stuff. Um, we are excited. I mean, we, we have, we're sitting on a fucking gold mine of incredible stuff. This is exactly what people want to hear when you're in these meetings. And we sit down with Justin and, and we start to unload on them and we are just in a fucking rhythm. Like, you know, we are so proud of ourselves and Three minutes in, I was going to say five minutes. It was three minutes in. It might have been two and a half minutes. His eyes fucking glaze over. And he puts a hand up at some point just to stop us, you know, and he needs to gather himself. He's like, guys, guys, can't sort through any of it. You know, <laughs> he's like, he's like, let me tell you a story. He's like, you know, uh, uh, Fast Five, couldn't figure the movie out, right? Uh, uh, you know, we're, we're wrestling with character stuff and thematics. I just can't, I can't figure the movie out to save my life. He's like, I'm in the shower one day and it just fucking hits me like a lightning bolt. Uh, Vin and Paul dragging a safe through Rio. He's like, then he's like, I saw the whole movie after that. He's like, so what I want you to do is take this character stuff, take these thematics, put it away for a little bit. I want you to take a week or two and, and bring me back 10 of those. Vin and Paul dragging a safe through Rio. And so, and, and so Dick Ron and I had to go and spend like two weeks drumming up fucking set pieces. You know, it's like a big thing happens in the, you know, on a yacht in San Francisco Bay, uh, uh, self-driving cars, big chase. Uh, there are people in one of the cars, which one is it? They're all identical, all of these things. Right. And so, and, and, and so we do like a 12 page document just outlining, you know, 10 different, uh, um, uh, set pieces uh justin's not going to read that so we have to get it to one of his producers she reads it then she has to go and pitch it to him as he is driving to set on a mountain dew commercial or something <laughs> like that and so so finally we have to like meet justin on on the you know at the set of the mountain dew commercial um some snowboarding fit or whatever and justin's like guys this is really great work uh give me uh number two uh, number five and number seven <laughs> and go off. And so, and so, so we had these three set pieces and then we had our movie. And so we then had to, again, writing by Mad Libs, we had to write a movie that connected these three or four set pieces that he had picked out and try to have thematics and character arcs and all of that stuff. And this was going to be, I mean, this is going to be a, 
you know, uh, I mean, the first thing he said to us is like, because there was this thing he bought, he bought this. He didn't know if he wanted to make a big movie or if he wanted to go back to his roots at that point, he had made these big movies. Like, you know, he, he, he had, he had came up, uh, uh, you know, via Sundance, maybe he wanted to make a smaller, more personal movie. And so finally he sits down with us and he's like, you know, I see this as a, as a mid budget movie, you know, $150 million. <laughs> Mid-budget. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, that's that's a mid-budget movie for him. Uh, yeah. and, 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 and I think after that, seventy-five and three hundred million. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so this is going to be a this is going to be a really big fucking movie. And one hundred and fifty after we got done was was going to be this is going to be a two hundred million dollar movie. And so again, the stakes were as high as they were going to be. This was like this was us writing on the biggest fucking stage, and it was an absolute fucking clusterfuck. It was a dentist. Who is going to give me five thousand dollars? Five thousand yeah. dollars to write a movie with a helicopter here. and lesbians and vampires. That's what it was. But but times and, and, and look, a million. Again, it, it that Andy Sedaris thing, that Justin Lin thing, like that is how all of like Lethal Weapon, whatever it was, three or four. Like they they told the producer Joel Silver, "Hey, there's this building that's going to be blown up. Do you want to?" come up with a Blow scene up. yeah you know like the bond movies someone comes to the broccolis at a party and says i know a guy who wants to ski off a cliff and open a parachute at the can you can you use that guy can you do something <laughs> with the guy who's going to do that uh yeah we can do a thing where a guy skis off a cliff and opens a parachute and i tom cruise just repeated that stunt in mission impossible yeah. <laughs> uh whatever number we're up to now and that, again that's got a long history of being how the sausage is made, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, it always cracks me up when you see like spec scripts for action movies and they have these incredibly de detailed balletics action scenes. And yeah, I absolutely know you need that to sell it to executives and directors and people with no imaginations. But if you've ever seen a bond movie script that was about to go in production, it literally says spectacular ski chase. Yeah. Eight minutes. <laughs> and, and then they fight. Yeah. Because Roger Moore and his stunt guy and John Glenn and the second unit director <clears throat> and the and the ski guy and the DP are going to stand on a mountain and walk around for a week and go, maybe we could do a thing. Uh, Roger, could you? No, we'll have the other guy do that. You know, like, and that's how that stuff is. Can you 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 walk the room and go? You know, you, when you're writing an action scene, you're writing it for a room that doesn't exist, for a mountain that you've never been to, for you know. And and that all gets thrown out, you know, like when it comes down to actually make. And again, that may be less true on a movie like Violent Night, where you have a little more smallness and control and you're not going for like. But at the same time, we knew what you're doing with the, it. Yeah. The 87 North, David Leach's company. So it's kind of like you want them to step in and come up. Yeah. With the better ideas for I mean because that a lot of that was comedy based. It was more like, we're like, well, this is, he'll fight this character in this room. And this scene's kind of about him pulling funny things out of his Santa sack. And beyond that, that yeah. you know, that they're going to do cooler stuff. I mean, they have a whole team. Right. They build the set out of cardboard and props and stuff. It's the craziest thing to see how much work goes into their like fake version of the yeah. set they build. And they're like separate, like stunt headquarters down the street mm -hmm. from the where they're shooting the movie. Yeah. But yeah, that's the, yeah. that's the genius is the, you know, as good as you as a, uh, a, a screenwriter can come up with an action scene in the real world, the real world is going to impinge itself upon what you're doing. And that's a good thing. Yeah. 
That's a they'll find the knoll in the mountain and the stunt guy will turn to the John Glenn and say, Hey, couldn't Bond I could go off this thing and catch that branch and then do a spin around on it and turn and drop with the gun in my hand and that'll look really cool. And you go, Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I wouldn't have come up with that. You it's know, time to put up. yeah, the real world is a is a wonderful place. And you do <laughs> in the in terms of filmmaking, you you know, there's a reason why those all green screen movies have sort of that airless quality you have to be the greatest genius in the world to find a way to let the accidents of the real world impinge upon your soundstage you know that's the so many big budget movies end with that soundstage fight scene that just i'm they it suffocates me mm-hmm. you know and then i've seen it done well you know i love the end of Endgame. i think that you know they they spend enough money there I mean, look, yeah. it, only, it only took using literally every acting movie, every working movie star at once to make a really great climax to a film. But you know what I'm saying? Like, there's oh, that. Oh, yeah. That, no, I mean, uh, like, you see I it a lot. Just reminiscing that I do. I mean, maybe we're due again because it's been a while. Mm-hmm. But um, the era where you'd almost an action, you'd become an action star because you're like, what's this guy's deal? Oh, he can do this in crazy thing. Let's make a whole movie where he does that crazy. I always think of yeah. like Jim Cotta being the funniest example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. He's a gymnast. Yeah. Yeah. He can do he can just do a flip without running. <laughs> so he does that like three times in the movie. He's he's running through the woods and there's a fucking pommel horse there for some like, reason. Well, where's our new Jackie Chan? That's kind I of I realize that, he's still around, but yeah. That that is actually that reminds me of one of my favorite examples of like directors inventing set pieces off of crazy you know of just accidental shit in uh i listened to the commentary on diamonds are forever in the old you know guy hamilton was still alive at the time and uh he's talking about the scene where connery gets beaten up by the two like 90 pound gymnasts and he's <laughs> on the commentary he's like you know he's this old british guy, he's like so in the screenplay Sean gets there and there's some big fellow and Sean and the big fellow have a fisticuffs and it's all there. I mean, we've seen it, haven't we? <laughs> and we were prepping the movie and I was watching the Summer Olympics with my wife and I was watching the gymnasts and I went, my God, these women are terrifying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, how funny would it be to have these two little slips yeah. of a thing just kick the living shit out of that giant Scotsman and so that's the scene in the movie it comes from Guy Hamilton being scared of little women watching, you know, yeah. but he's not wrong. And it's one of the most unique scenes in the whole series because it's not some giant dude. You know, it's it's two teenage girls who don't to combine <laughs> don't weigh as enough uh, as much as Connery. Uh, and it makes for and again, they're, you know, being lively to that thing. The other great fight scene in that movie is in the elevator and that. <clears throat> The set designer, a great production designer, Ken Adam, lived in some London apartment building with a one foot by one foot square elevator. And Guy Hamilton is jammed in there with Sean Connery and uh, and Broccoli and Saltzman and, and, you know, says, you know, it'd be really funny. Try punching me in this room. Like, try, <laughs> try, like, getting back far enough to throw a punch. We could have a hilarious fight scene in a two foot by, you know, in a tiny little elevator. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that's so much more interesting than any other way to do it. And I really think that's the the holy grail for screenwriting in general. I always, you know, it's always like, how has this been done before and how can we do it different? 
Yeah. How can we yeah. not do? I literally think screenwriters should have a wear a shop collar, and when they type the words "We've got company," it you know fifty volts right in the neck. <laughs> you know, let's go fifty volts right in the neck. Like, don't just fucking find another way to say "We've got company" for Christ's sake. We, 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 we or, or do meta commentary on it. That's yeah. you know that's another thing. We, we we've we've been going for a long time, uh, yes, and I feel I, I uh, well no I mean I feel like we could talk for another four hours about all this stuff. We should uh, check in on strike on yeah. strike stuff because because I I reached out to Josh and I said hey do you want to come on and talk about the strike? And we are now <laughs> we're, we are now you know an hour and twenty minutes into this and we have uh, barely touched on it. Um, I, I I contacted you one because I I like and and respect you and your work, uh, and it was going to be great to have you on. Uh, but, but I see you out there every day, um, you know, holding the line and thank you for that. And, you know, I've tried to be out there as much as I, I have been able to, uh, with my six year old and the other stuff, uh, I have going on, but, um, you know, talk us through that a little bit. I mean, talk us through, um, I mean, obviously like you have a lot going on, uh, this has interrupted your, your life, your career, everything. Um, uh, the stakes are pretty high for you. So, so walk us through all, all that. What does this mean to you? Why are you out there? Um, where do you hope we're going to end up? Where do you think we're going to end up? How long is it going to take? I know that's a lot of questions, but, but give us the download. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, so being in a guild, I think is kind of an awesome thing, especially, I mean, yeah, cause I, I wasn't in the guild until we sold our first screenplay, uh, which became National Lampoon's dorm days. Uh, one, we sold that in, uh, 2002, but we didn't get in the guild until 2015 wow. doing the second season of Gull and the Insatiable because the first season was, you know, as you know, animation is rarely covered by the guild. And the first season was, was late night on Fox on Saturdays. But second season, uh, even though they ended up just burning off the episodes because there was a regime regime change when we were doing the second season, it was moving to Fox Sunday night. And thanks to the Simpsons and like season something crazy late, like season eight or 10, they finally demanded that the Simpsons become a guild show, but that created the precedent. So now any Fox primetime show, if it's animation is automatically guild. Thank you. Yeah. Simpsons writers. Yeah, there um, but uh, so to me, being in the guild is just a huge thing of being like, yeah, I have insurance and residuals mm -hmm. are fucking awesome. Uh, and I think, I've seen personally, like you don't get like streaming residuals just kind of suck. The model for it is bad. It's okay. If it's something you made the old fashioned way and now it's on streaming, but things that you made for a streamer, the residuals are very bad. Usually, I mean, I don't even, I know there's like a system for it, but I know so many people who like, you have to chase down even getting the residuals. Not to say that that's never a problem with, <laughs> uh, normal productions, but you'd think it would do the new streamer things. They're all tech companies that it would just be a little more automatic. Um, but so for me, it's very much about residuals. I've done obviously some TV, but 70% of the guild is TV. So a lot of mm -hmm. the, the bigger things that the WGA is fighting for that the studios don't want to give us, uh, which is why I think the DGA was able to make their kind of, 
I, it didn't seem like it was bad. It certainly didn't seem like a great deal. Yeah. There was the part of me that was like, I feel like all three guilds should have just struck together and we could have yeah. probably they, gotten They also, they got hoodwinked on the AI thing. For, for sure. That's the thing that, because I think real. residuals Oh, they can AI, use this one version of the software. Yeah, they'll just invent Either a different a lot kind more of software. Than, yeah, there's a lot more versions of the software um, than the one that you're afraid. And they but have residuals and AI are, are the thing that I think impact all three guilds equally and uh, pretty much everyone. I really DGA is a little weird because I think a lot of people either don't know or forget that like first ADs and stuff like that are part of the DGA and they obviously function very differently than yeah. the actual director. Um, but I mean, you know, so like I do feel like some of the stuff that we're striking for don't super impact me. But again, I feel like that's the whole, that's what being in a guild's all about. Um, Pat and I are certainly in a more fortunate space than I know a lot of people because we have pro we have three projects that are currently on hold, but they weren't about to go into production or already you know were in production that got mm -hmm. shut down. I know a lot of people, especially in TV, who just the TV industry somewhat shut down leading up to the strike, even before it was official. Yeah. Cause most people didn't want to green light a show only for it to get shut down. Cause that's, you're just losing so much money. So especially yeah. like, like TV editors, not even people in the WGA or in the WGA, like that was really impacting them. So I, I, I do feel fortunate that we're at least in a spot where this hasn't like ruined something we were doing. Yeah. Um, we doing okay. Uh, financially, which is also good, but I mean, we'll see how long this lasts. Yeah. Like, if it drags on into the winter, we're not going to be doing as financially yeah. okay yeah. No, as my, we are now. My wife's in 705, uh, you know, Costumers Guild, and she hasn't worked since March. Like, the yeah. slowdown started, like, because she was print, like, that's when the, the new things, like, there were things, yeah. the things she was working on wrapped mm. up, and that's usually when. The pilots that got approved start shooting and it didn't happen nothing well, well and, and, and yeah and she was on like an epic i mean she's really good at her job she was on an epic role she 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 yep. had done loki she had done star wars she had done picard yep. she had done you know yeah, 10 amazing yeah 10 amazing things in a row like was was just on the roll of all roles and then so yeah, by the way she also just up. texted me a question for you josh which is yes where the, where the hell is her violent night funko <laughs> I, you know, we also don't have what? Sonic movie fun cows. That's oh, really wow. crazy. Now that's I that's inexplicable. Yeah, but that's I, oh, that I'd is inexplicable. A, I mean, Violent Night is already missing the boat, but no Sonic the Hedgehog fun cow. I want a John Leguizamo Funko. Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, I have a friggin' Werner Herzog Funko from The Mandalorian because I think that's hilarious. <laughs> that is that's amazing. amazing. To have a Werner Herzog Funko in general kind yeah. of cracks me up. The weird goddamn Funkos that I have behind me, you know what I'm saying? Like they they make a, you know, they make a Woody from Cheers Funko, but not a Sonic. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Something's going on there that's above yeah. my pay grade. But, there you go. But then, then there's like the That's picketing important. part of it, which is, is weird because it's such an odd thing to suddenly be doing. There is a part of it that is entertaining as like a novelty. And I've, yeah. especially as like a, a feature screenwriter, you don't bump into a lot of other writers unless they're right. your friends that you hang out with. So like yeah. I'm seeing people I haven't seen in like 15 years and meeting people, which is kind of cool, but also 
picketing sucks and it's hot out and yeah, <laughs> it's kind yeah. of a no, miserable it, thing. I went to the Ugly Betty picket last Friday because I produced a movie with a couple of actors from Ugly Betty and it was nice to see Anna Ortiz again and all that. But it's just you know, and because comic books haven't shut down, I still got pages <laughs> due, so I can only be out there a certain amount of. Uh, and I'm not in the WGA; I'm in TAG. Uh, but you know, I show up for support uh, because I think it's I think it's important. It's important to keep that pressure up, and I feel like the public relations is so much better this time than it was in 2007. And in in 1987, everyone was just "fuck you guys." Why are you Why are you lazy hacks? Yeah. Not just taking whatever deal that you got offered. Um, so it's, I feel like there's been a good evolution. Um, but yeah, the thing about the DGA, uh, Lee Wachowski actually had a great thread on Twitter when she was trying to get her fellow members to not vote for the deal where she very gently said too many of y'all think you're management. Um, you don't actually, you don't identify with creatives and artists. You identify with bosses cause you're, you think you're bosses. <laughs> and you're not bosses and you should not lick the boots of bosses. Uh, again, she was less aggressive um, about it than I am. But I think <laughs> I think that's absolutely true. And man, growing up, I wanted to be in the DGA worse than anything. And after that vote, I was like, you know, I'm good. I, I, I will keep my directing jobs indie and cheap and uh, under my own control and not have to be a member of that particular chowder and marching society. Um, I did one before we, I did want to say you worked with two of my favorite people on Golan, um, uh, Cree and, uh, Marie, Mary, Maria Bamford. Oh yeah. Know. I, I directed a little video pilot. I'll send it to you. I directed a little video pilot for Maria before lady dynamite. That was way, that was ungreen lightable, but I think. Oh <laughs> uh, no. Yeah. That, that, imagine, great. imagine, uh, it was co-written by, uh, Urbaniac and co-stars Urbaniac and it's uh imagine Lady Dynamite but with like 90% more David Lynch. Wow. <laughs> and one of our co-stars by the way I you know kudos to, to to Urbaniac for having a certain genius for casting. Cast as his ex-wife in it was Rhea Seahorn before she had done oh, wow. anything. This is like over a decade ago. And when she started on uh, Better Call Saul, I was like, oh, it's a girl from my short. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, it's the girl from my short doing the best work anyone's done on television in 20 years. That's that's kind of amazing. But yeah, and Cree's an old dear friend of mine. She's such a such a wonderful pro. Um, but yeah, yeah Maria's because the show I'm from Minnesota. The show was set in Minnesota. And sure. for some reason, we got everyone excited about that. So we were trying to cast people from sure. Minnesota. And she's such an old veteran of just voice work that oh yeah and she's so yeah. funny that our eps were like oh Wait, yeah we, i bet we could get her yeah the the lesson i learned which was not something you were up against uh in the show like that is in live action have three cameras burning on maria at every at, at because she will punch up between the master and the close-up and not understand. No, I need you to say the shit you said. In the <laughs> like, I know you think this joke is 8% funnier now, but I, I got to match this shit in editing. So, um, she would never say the same line twice. Uh, and again, it always got funnier. Yeah. But it was like, I guess this is going to play in the close-up now. <laughs> and I will shoot some cutaways of James looking puzzled. And uh, then we can use all of this. <laughs> you know? But yeah, she's, she's a delightful, uh, wonderful human being. 
we should wrap up. This was really great, though, Josh. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Excellent chat, and and I'll uh, maybe if I strike. go back to if I go back to Disney, I'll 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 see you out there. Yeah, um, I'm there. There and Warner Brothers. Those are my two. Yeah, yeah. Guys. Disney. I, I I've I've been to Disney. You know, more than a few times. I'm dealing with a, a shoulder thing and all the uh, all the guild. You talk about uh, the importance of our our guild health insurance. Yeah. Uh, a lot of those doctors are out there in Burbank, right across from Disney. So yes, you know, yeah, that is very yeah. Good. yeah, yeah. Get a little get a little physical therapy. Uh, run across the street. Take it for the a funniest hours. thing about striking at Disney for me is that the day before the strike started. Tag had a let's all get together in arts and crafts and make some original handmade signs. And I went to the offices in Burbank and I was for various reasons. I took public transportation out there. So I didn't want to take my signs home with me. And then on Instagram, I would like catch them like, in hey, photos <laughs> at Burbank and at Disney. And when I went to the tag strike, the animation strike at Burbank, the animation picket, I was like, I wonder if I'll be reunited there it is. And then, like, one of my signs was just lying in the pile. And I was like, yay, I finally get to take my sign. Nice. Such a weird-ass world we live in. Anyway, thank you so much, Josh. Where can people find you online if they want to follow you? Um, I mean, I'm on Instagram. I'm also on the – I joined I Twitter in October. Um, Good timing. Someone, I knew it was a – I like to say, yeah, you want to – I like to show up for the house party once it's already on fire. Yeah. yeah. Nice. <laughs> Cops have already come. Yeah. 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 There are them. Josh Miller light. Uh, I oh, feel nice. like I'm also starting accounts on all these. It's, it's too many, too yeah. many Twitter competitors. I, I just got, I just got my blue sky invite from yes. uh, Mr. Avalone here. Yes. Ah, yeah. I it up. I'm on there. Uh, Josh Miller light again. People can also check out my podcast. It's called Best Movies Never Made, which I do with my co-host Stephen Scarlatta, who made the documentary Yodorowski's Dune. Right. And so the podcast is a continuation of that, where we explore different interesting movies that never have, quite happened. Have you ever done the Voyage of G. Mastorna? I don't even know what that is. I mean, Steve that is, might. he's the expert. That is a movie that Fellini did enormous pre-production on during a time he was having a health crisis and it's about an, it was, it's an afterlife story. And he eventually decided to take the fucking hint and not make it. <laughs> like he was on his deathbed with some, uh, viral infection, literally trying to get this movie made. And eventually was like, you know, maybe is not the time to make an afterlife movie for me. And he <laughs> dropped it, but it was going to star Mastriani. It's a movie about a bunch of people on a, I mean, and this story has been done a million different ways. But it's a bunch of people on a, an airliner, and it lands in a it it is forced down in a mysterious plaza in a mysterious nowhere, and of course it's purgatory. They're all dead, and it's no, uh, it was still for a movie that will never be made. And there's some mm -hmm. like production photos of Mastriani in the costume and of the square and of the airplane. It's a fascinating like it didn't get anywhere near as close to production as Jodorowsky's Dune, but yeah. that's my that is my favorite uh, never made. Sounds like Fellini's The Langoliers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, maybe we'll have to have you on the podcast to talk about it. Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly an expert in it, but it is, a, it is a thing to – I could read up on it and talk about it. It's That is a great uh, – it reminds me of the thing in uh, Sandman, the library of, of, yeah. ne of never written books uh, that everybody wished someone had gotten around to writing. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, there's some amazing – yeah, I've, have you done uh, Orson Welles' uh, Heart of Darkness? That's another no, we uh, 
we because we largely it's uh, Steve's stuff inspiration, or we'll have on friends for their unmade mm-hmm. movies. Nice. Oh, sure. Um, I think Steve, generally speaking, is steered away from some of those like real, like you know, Kubrick's Napoleon and right. some of the sure. yeah. the older ones. But I think we'll get around to them eventually because I sure. think. Yeah, those are interesting to talk about. My my two favorites. And um, I was looking for uh, film properties to exploit in the in the comic uh, world and, you know, talk to studios about doing, um, you know, like a a world of point break uh, comic book, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, a world of roadhouse comic book, that sort of thing. But um, but there was this other thing like the um, there is this there's this alternate version of, of alien three, right? Uh, this, this like script. many alternate versions. Well, well, but, 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 the, but there was a script that all the nerds said was that was the version that should have been done. Like, is know, that the, the William Gibson one? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think so. And, and, and so some genius at dark horse, um, comics, uh, found a way to make a graphic novel of that script and people flip for it. It was wonderful. And so that was one of the things I started thinking about is like, okay, well, what, what is my version of this? And I found two things and, and spent, you know, about, I don't know, a year trying to negotiate uh, deals on both of them. And so the first one is there is a uh, Shane Black's original version of lethal weapon two. Um, which oh, where is, Riggs dies. Yeah, which is much darker, much crazier, and 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 it's it's an incredible fucking script, and 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 Shane wrote the hell out of it, and Shane loves it, and it's like his big like the 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 thing that haunts Shane when he goes to fucking bed is that that movie was never made, and so I'm like, hey, you know, Shane actually has the publishing rights. I'm like, let's do let's do a graphic novel, <laughs> and uh, and 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 got to where I was on email chains with the the agent the manager and shane fucking black and shane being like i love this idea let's figure out a way to do this and of course you know i, I mean it all comes down to money like how do we make yeah. Shane money on this and 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 he was never you know he was never going to make a bag on it and so his people weren't you know weren't allowed to happen but but it got close to happening the other mm-hmm. one is that uh so i you know i spent some time working uh you know for uh writing for joel silver and spending some time around that office <laughs> and you start to look in in nooks and crannies and and right after the original commando movie was made uh and was this big hit they wrote a sequel to commando oh we that we've done an episode you, you, you've done it yeah, we, yeah. We, we, which is bonkers that ends with arnold at a wedding in a fucking wedding dress mowing Smoking down a ba- cigar yeah mowing, mowing down bad guys yeah uh which is incredible and i you know and, and i came uh, within an inch of of being able to make that as as a graphic novel, um, uh, you know, but things started to crop up and people started to get cagey about it, and I could never get a straight answer on why I was not getting the green light. And they recently announced a uh, they're they're doing. I mean, they're it, it, you know, it is in development. There are plans to make a Commando sequel. Finally, it's not With that Com- Arnold. Yeah, not that Commando sequel. It would be yeah. old, it would be old Arnold. Um, but, but yeah, so those were, um, those are two, I mean, I spent a lot, I spent a lot of fucking time <laughs> trying, trying to make those graphic novels and, uh, and, and, and never, never got across the finish line, but, um, but it's it, good it, to it, know because at times we've been like, maybe we should approach dark horse about doing like a best movies never made. Now yeah. I feel like that might not be worth it. It seems well, like. no, I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I, I mean, the, the, there are a lot of hoops uh, to jump yeah. through, and, yeah. and 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 you know, I mean, the I mean, the big thing with the 
Um, I mean, the, the the big thing with the other properties, Point Break, you know, with with Roadhouse, is that they want to, you know, again, they're they're, uh, you know, I I I feel like, you know. Um, I, I was getting some traction on Roadhouse. And then again, people start, people within the company start to hear about it, people within the studio, right? And then all of a sudden you get a lightning bolt from like the, you know, the far right. left side being like, absolutely not. And it's, it, well, then they announced the Jake Gyllenhaal Roadhouse, right? Like we don't want a comic book if we're yeah. doing this other thing. Um, and so it just becomes, I, I mean, I, I think it's a great idea. Um, I know that, I know that I spent a lot of time trying to, to move stuff. Uh, but, but what would happen is, you know, it would be very hard to get the first one made. And once you got the first one made and people saw cause it would be fucking grand probably. And right. once they saw there's money to be made here, there's cachet to be had. Um, yeah. it, would, it would get a lot easier. So I, yeah, no, I no one's it, done. So. No one's done a Jodorowsky's Dune comic. Have they? No, I mean, I guess and he kind of ripped himself off with like the Incal and yes, meta bearing. Well, and that's that is another thing that happens a lot with un unmade movies. We've all done it. I'm yeah. sure everyone in this call has done it. You strip mine the unmade thing yep. for the yeah. for for ideas, and you're like, well, now I really can't make that because I use that entire plot and character <laughs> yeah. uh, again. There are characters that have been like in every spec I've ever written. And, you know, it, when one of those gets made, it's like, well, now, <laughs> now I need to rewrite that character in the first five versions of this because uh, I can't keep going back to that one dude. But no. um, anyway, yeah, thanks. That's, that sounds like a great topic. It's a great, it's a great a show. Really, yeah. A really rich one. I think, I can't remember what publisher had the rights. It might be Marvel that did it. It might have been Dark Horse. But someone did a George Lucas first draft of the Star Wars comic oh. about Luke Starkiller, and they 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 uh, they stuck very close to Ralph McQuarrie's painting designs rather oh, than that sounds cool. You know where Han Solo yeah. is Toshiro Toshiro Mifune, where he's a forty-five-year-old Han Solo and Obi-Wan are the same guy. The Wookiee's not a dog, but some kind of monster. The stormtroopers have lightsabers, like all of that stuff. That's looks really cool and haunting in the paintings, but you're like, they never the made this. this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they never, <laughs> robot, the robot is even more of a ripoff of Maria from Metropolis, you know, all of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, let's wrap up though. Ryland, where can the kids at home find you? As per usual, I am at Ryland Grant on all forms of social media. If you're just listening, that is R-Y-L-E-N-D-G-R-A-N-T. I have to spell it for you because it's not a real name. My parents drunkenly <laughs> arranged letters and saddled me with it. And so now I have to spell it for everyone. But I am, uh, yeah, a couple of movies coming out later this year. Uh, you know, watch the social media for announcements on those. Um, you know, it's a, a little murky with all the crazy Hollywood crap that's going on um uh join us uh us join me join us at san diego comic-con there is a uh, writer's block panel on friday night if you're not going to the eisners um i will also be on at least two other panels uh circumstances are mitigating there may be more there may be interesting but i will finally be able to talk about all of the immortal studios uh fun that i've been up to uh wuxia kung fu ass kicking uh incredibility um uh, I'm looking forward to being able to talk about it, but I will only bring us home. Huh? I have Elvira in Monster. No, in yes, in Monsterland. Sorry, similar titles. Uh, currently in stores. Two issues are out. More coming. Uh, I gave at the top. I talked about all the Comic Con stuff I'm doing. If you follow me, the nice thing as I reach middle age in the area in the era of Google 
is that the name you got made fun of on the playground for is very easily Googled. <laughs> I am the only David Avalone out there for you to search for. DavidAvaloneFreelance.com is the website. I'm on all the various social medias, very easily found. And uh, until next time, thank you for coming on, Josh. And thanks, everybody. For thanks for having me. home for listening and watching. Thanks for listening, guys. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on the Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.